My name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about John Landis, the guy that made Animal House, American Werewolf in London, Sylvester Stallone's Oscar, and tons of other stuff. Twilight Zone, the movie. Yes, Twilight oh, Zone, the movie. Okay, so John Landis, I thought I was going to have more fun this week. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to start with right off the bat. John Landis, uh, you know, he's made all of these wacky comedies that people remember fondly. He's made a couple of horror comedies that people also remember fondly. You know, you see him interviewed and he's kind of a fun raconteur. Mm -hmm. Um, And watching these movies this week, I didn't have as good a time as I hoped that I would. Yeah. Also, the specter of Twilight Zone, the movie, hangs over John Landis's career in a way that um, became more apparent to me this week. So for people that don't know, during the making of Twilight Zone, the movie, of which John Landis directed one of the segments, there was an accident that happened where a helicopter was blown out of the sky by an explosion, and it landed on three actors that were in the scene. Vic Morrow and two Vietnamese children, and they were decapitated. And from there, a big kind of media circus exploded around the idea of whose fault was it. And John Landis and a number of his collaborators were actually on trial, uh, a nine-month trial for involuntary manslaughter that ended with their acquittal. You know, I have to say I read uh, a lot of the book Outrageous Conduct this week because I kind of wanted to figure out what was my attitude towards this case. That book being about the case and the events that led to it and what happened afterwards. And I think that uh, Landis got off easy. From what I was reading about it, that he was pretty obviously guilty of criminal negligence. Mm -hmm. And um, he could have been brought up as well on child endangerment laws because the two uh, Vietnamese actors that were in the film there are child labor laws that forbade children from working after hours. Mm-hmm. And so these children were not on the call sheet. They were paid sort of under the table so that they could work after hours. So, you know, that alone gives you an indication of, you know, the, the sort of ship that he was running here. But also the book paints a pretty damning picture of him as a filmmaker, somebody who uh, was a little arrogant, a little egotistical, uh, was always going for, you know, realism and you know, kind of uh, dangerous thrills in his movies. I mean, you only have to look at the Blues Brothers, a movie on which he bragged that they used much thicker candy glass. It might not even have been candy glass. Yeah, because he liked the uh, sound that real glass made when it broke. Yeah. And, you know, testimony of many of the people on Twilight Zone, the movie, attest to the unsafe working atmosphere. So in the book, there's uh, a story about, you know, Vic Morrow running along the ledge of a cliff And, you know, they didn't put any mattresses underneath and Landis is going, come on, Vic, run, run, you know, you'll be safe. It's fine. And Vic Morrow, an old guy washed up, you know, who's really happy to get a job in a big Spielberg produced movie. Think of the power disparity there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, think about somebody like Landis, who for the whole duration of the movie is saying, come on, we got to make the big explosive finale really cool. We got to have the explosions and the helicopter and the actors in the same shot. You know, we can't we can't do insert shots. We got to have, you know, we can't have we can't have little person stuntmen in there. It's got to be real kids. Helicopter. Let's get it lower, lower, lower. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's an accident. Yes. And I'm sure that it haunts John Landis to this day. He says it haunts him every day. And it should, in my opinion. And I'm sorry that Spielberg doesn't answer his calls anymore, but Mm -hmm. he got off easy. 
Yeah, I mean, he didn't go to jail, and he kept being able to make films from that point forward. I mean, he made Coming to America after this. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, one of the most popular comedies of all time at that time. I don't know. And you think of all the people who, and think of it in gendered terms as well. I Mm -hmm. mean, Elaine May is unemployable after making Ishtar, but John Landis gets to make Coming to America, and everyone forgets about it. Well, I'm sure he would dispute the idea that everyone forgot about it, but you know what I mean. We were talking earlier that when you mention the name John Landis, people don't usually bring this up in the way that they would when Roman Polanski is brought up. Yeah. And there's like multiple factors around why that is. Like Polanski, that it's still something that haunts him because he's a fugitive from justice, Mm -hmm. while uh, John Landis was tried in the court of law and he was acquitted. Now, what that means in the sense that like it's the big Hollywood machine uh, yeah, there's a lot of complex working parts yeah. that are probably not all uh, kosher, if you will. And also, John Landis, obviously a name brand director, mm-hmm. but not the kind of iconic auteur that somebody like a Roman Polanski is as well. Or even a Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Where, and they were coming up side by side when they were making their bigger, biggest hits. Like, you don't watch a John Landis movie and say, ah, mwah, that's a John Landis movie. <laughs> well, okay, we do, but, yeah, yeah. but most people don't. Most people just watch Coming to America and don't think about who directed it. Yeah, they probably don't even remember who John Landis is. Because, yeah. like, he has not been a name that pops up more and more and more. They won't go, oh, yeah, John yeah. Landis directed Animal House. They'll go, no, National Lampoon's yeah. Animal House, that one with John Belushi in it. Now, something else that the Outrageous Conduct book points out is when William Friedkin was shooting The French Connection to do that iconic chase scene, one of the shots was they just planted a camera on a car and drove, you know, 90 miles per hour yeah. through the Chicago Loop. And thank God nobody was killed. Nobody was killed, and the result was you got one of the most famous scenes in any movie. Well, William Friedkin, if you read uh, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, is a fucking monster. Yeah. And nobody brings that stuff up when he does, like, cute little Q&As with Nicholas Winding Refn mm-hmm. and stuff like that, because no one died on his watch. Now, uh, Twilight's on the movie. I haven't actually seen it. Really? We've talked about doing it for a Patreon episode sometime. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Um, but I mean, Landis' segment is the second worst in the film, the first belonging to Steven Spielberg. On quality, not on the bad stuff. And by most accounts, I think people would agree, a less towering achievement than the French Connection is. So, yeah. Well, John Landis, I don't remember his exact quote, but I was reading some newspaper reports that he said, like, at least Vic Moreau died making a great movie. Ugh painful. This is another reason why people friggin' hate John Landis. I mean, like, John Landis at the same time, when he appears on a podcast, like, me and Will are overjoyed to hear him talking with somebody like Joe Dante about old movie history and stories of stuff that they've experienced. I like him on Trailers from Hell, for Mm -hmm. example. Like, he seems like a fun guy to chat with. And, like, he's a guy whose career started Mm -hmm. so early. If you start reading about John Landis, he has, like, the go-to stories that, like, he started when he was 18 and he worked on Kelly's Heroes Mm -hmm. and he worked as a stuntman on a bunch of spaghetti westerns before eventually going and making his own movie which was a monster homage schlock in 1973 wait can i bring up that thing about the spaghetti westerns didn't he lie about working on uh, one spot time in the west i'm sure he did he's a bit of a fabulous yes he is he did work on kelly's heroes though because that's where he met don rickles and he will mention kelly's heroes in every single interview that he ever does but his first movie was schlock and he was 21 years old when he made it you know full of piss and vinegar and I think the idea was he was the youngest 
this director to ever make a commercially released film. Mm-hmm. You've seen Schlock, right? Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it is fun. It's not by any stretch of the imagination a very good movie. I love its trailer under the title Banana Monster, <laughs> yeah. where it just repeats Banana Monster, Banana Monster over and over again. That was after they re-released it after the success of Animal House. And like Schlock is a movie that like it's obvious John Landis putting everything that he loves in a picture. He even plays the gorilla in most shots. It's so like kind of chintzy, mm-hmm. but it's it's a, a movie made like out of a lot of love for you know old monster movies like it's obviously an homage to any old monster movie where there's a guy in a gorilla suit i love gorilla suits. like if you love the idea of a guy in a gorilla suit that's, i do that's the joke of yeah. schlock basically and from that film he actually got hired to direct the kentucky fried movie by the zucker brothers according to john landis because the zucker brothers read about him being 21 years old they saw the commercial for schlock and they were like Wow, this guy can teach us how to actually make movies because the Zucker Brothers took their kind of review that they were doing and they wanted to put it on screen. So like Kentucky Fire Movie is just a bunch of sketches all lined up one after the other. And it is my favorite John Landis movie, but <laughs> I think that has more to do with the Zucker Brothers, frankly. And it's not even my favorite Zucker Brothers movie. <laughs> yeah. But I do really like Kentucky Fried Movie. I mean, it's very funny. Mm-hmm. Right? Particularly I mean, the it's famous. It's no groove too, but... <laughs> <laughs> but what about that Enter the Dragon parody in it? It's funny. It goes on a little bit long, but yeah, it's funny. But don't they get the style of like a Hong Kong yeah, action they do. movie down? I, Kentucky Fried Movie is like probably the top like of that era sketch comedy films that were burst from Kentucky Fried Movie, yeah. it being the best in the way that Jaws is the best shark movie. I should maybe not watch Kentucky Fried oh, Movie man. again. Yeah, I keep those fond memories okay. on the inside of your heart because like those fond memories do not exist for John Landis's like great big smash, which was Animal House. Okay, Animal House. This is the one, you know? Yeah, this is the one that like made John Landis the comedy name. I hate it so much. I hate it too. Um, I don't really know personally. Maybe it just speaks to my friend group, but mm. I don't know anybody who likes it. I feel like my dad would be someone who likes it. Animal House. I knew people in high school who liked Revenge it. of the Nerds. Well, like it represents an ideal of mm. like who you want to be as like an outcast nerd guy who's not a jock. You just want to be like an anarchist taken out against all the upper crust people and being a massive asshole while you're doing well, it. Well, also actually, like if you're a jock though, like I remember a lot of like the broiest guys in my high school loved Animal House. Yeah. Well, uh, they don't see themselves as the jock. They see themselves as yeah. like the, you know, guy uh, playing golf and hitting things into other things. I don't find this movie very funny, putting mm-hmm. aside my uh, distaste for everything it represents (laughs) yes like there are some scenes in this movie you know just briefly it's the shenanigans of what are they the the delta house yeah the raunchiest frat at the at the college ah the comedy of a character not committing date rape oh good god what an awful scene (laughs) yep uh but it's them and their uh misadventures fighting the evil dean played by john vernon Uh, every scene i want just john vernon to come back i like john vernon in this movie (laughs) yes i do very funny yeah Uh, i kind of agree with him yeah actually <laughs> like the animal house like why are they creating so much trouble uh, and and they're also fighting this uh upper crust fraternity mm-hmm. who you know i don't see why they're any better or worse <laughs> than the animal house frankly <laughs> yeah like they're all pieces of shit <laughs> yeah i mean they're fraternities so but, they're already but garbage the delta house there are pieces of shit ostensibly yeah. yes um and it's just a lot of uh disconnected scenes mm-hmm. most of them not that funny at one point you're like man the movie's almost wrapping up and then they go on a road trip and you're like why so 
here are two genres of joke that I don't find funny in this movie. One genre is there's a scene where one of the animal housers or several of the animal housers actually exploit the death of a woman to, you know, uh, get sympathy from other women and, you know, by getting sympathy, uh, have sex with them. This is potentially, I think, uh, rich comic terrain. But for me, at least, it depends on men can see themselves in this scene. They can see themselves uh, and, and their, their basis desires. But are those desires honorable? Are they good? And are you rooting for those desires? No, you are not. You're not. But I think you're supposed to egg on these guys as they do it in the movie. Yeah. And I hate that. As a viewer, everybody involved in this wants you to be like, yeah, they're going to get one over on these women who don't know any better. This could potentially be a very funny scene if... We were all on the same page that these guys, while relatable, are horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, but that is not the case. That's the not movie the case. thinks that all of these animal housers yeah. are the funniest, coolest guys who are just bucking the system. And then, you know, in addition to that, there's a whole variety of jokes that I just feel like I've heard a million times. Like you don't find any humor of John Belushi looking at a bunch of women have a pillow fight? No. And I also didn't find it very funny when there's the one guy who's playing the guitar at the frat and he picks up the guitar and he bangs it against the wall and destroys it. Awful. Well, it's just, how many times have you heard people complain about that one douchebag who plays the guitar? All the time. All the time. It's I like, hate that guy. Yeah, we all hate that guy, but it's like, you know, was this a funnier idea in the 70s back before we'd all heard the same joke over and over and over again? <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, what's funny about the movie and what everyone remembers about the movie is John Belushi. I uh, tell funny stuff in food into his mouth. Uh, I'm a zit. <laughs> yeah. You know, iconic. He's in uh, shockingly little of the movie. <laughs> yes. He's just this pixie-ish spirit who pops up every now and then, uh, you know, kills and then is gone. There's a funny scene where he tries to make another animal house or feel better mm. by doing his shtick and like breaking a bottle over that. his head. That's so funny. Yeah. And that's what more the movie needed more of is like actual camaraderie, not them making them feel like garbage yeah. and trying to exploit uh, everybody around them. In theory, I like that John Belushi was used sparingly because like, it, he makes a big impact every time he shows up. But the stuff in between those scenes is so boring. Like the film climaxes as it should with the animal house being disbanded forever. Yeah. But then they just destroy a parade and I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah, a futile and stupid gesture on someone else's part. And sure. you know, the, if you like, if you are on board with these guys, then maybe you'll be on board with that sentiment. You just look at it and you're like, all these white, rich guys who can afford going to college and university. Yeah, like the movie has the nerve to create some sort of like class tension between these two fraternities. They're but, at like a post-secondary education yeah, though. come on. Like, these are all rich guys. And also, I just didn't even like looking at the movie. Like it looks like it was <laughs> shot through mud. Hey, it has a great score by Elmer Bernstein. Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, and a lot of people would say that that's one of the reasons people like the movie, that it treated this comedy with this bombastic kind of adventure score. Well, you can't argue with the box office receipts. Mm -hmm. um, adjusted for inflation, I saw uh, in 2018 dollars it made 550 million dollars wow could you imagine insane. that <laughs> but the blues brothers which john landis made after animal house i watched recently loved it i do have fond memories of the blues brothers i mean it is two hours and like 30 minutes which is absurd but if you take it like 
a giant roadshow musical, yeah. it's a little bit easier to swallow. It's got great music in it. It has great stunts, some of the best car chases ever put to screen. And you've got John Belushi doing his shtick. you got a lot of great comedians in it, like John Candy shows up for a bit. Wait, you, you know? didn't mention the greatest comedian of them all, Dan Aykroyd? I was trying to avoid the topic, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, because we're saving it for that Patreon, Nothing But Trouble episode. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I think Dan Aykroyd really got his due in Blues Brothers 2000, but maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but, like, the Blues Brothers, tons of fun. It deserves the kind of classic status that it ha- that it has just because it's doing a bunch of stuff in the biggest way possible and it's probably the most coked out big budget major release ever famously like it went way over budget because everybody on set was doing the white powder mm-hmm. and it, I feel like that's what the movie exudes is this like oh yeah what, what, what if we did this and then we did this and it would be crazy and it'd be cool well unlike most of John Landis's movies the Blues Brothers isn't boring no it's not boring and you know I just watched Trading Places again mm-hmm. um, and God, I don't know. It's like 116 minutes long. I mean, that's a big problem with the films of John Landis, especially as you go further and further in his career, which is like, why is your film two hours? Give me scissors. I could cut whole scenes out of these movies. But Trading Places, when Dan Aykroyd uh, loses everything... Uh, you could chop out whole scenes of him like going to the country club and getting rejected. Like like one scene, one scene is not enough for Landis. So you got to do the point in three scenes. Now, do you think that's just a result of John Landis being so powerful that nobody could tell him no? I mean, clearly, by all accounts, he was pretty arrogant around <laughs> this time. Uh, maybe he's been humbled since then. I don't know. But he's like, I know what makes a mo- uh, film funny, and it, it needs to be two hours long. Well, his movies are so long, and yet the the character their relationships make no sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Trading Places, the relationship between Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, I think Jamie Lee Curtis is great in the movie, but like, I don't buy the relationship at all. Man, but I do like Trading Places quite a bit. What it has is Eddie Murphy. Yes. And I don't want to uh, discount what John Landis brings to these movies because, you know, one of the talents... Gorillas. Gorillas. Uh, scenes of old movies on TV. Love it. Uh, that running gag of See You Next Wednesday mm-hmm. movie posters. Uh, but one of the talents of a comedy director is being able to soothe the egos of comedians. Eddie Murphy and John Belushi, these are hot-tempered, volatile men, you know? Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> Dan, Dan Aykroyd, who is always talking about UFOs. <laughs> yep. He knows the real truth. And he'll let us know. And so I think John Landis deserves credit for having um, marshaled uh, John Belushi and Eddie Murphy into some of their funniest performances. Like, he's super funny in Trading Places. And Trading Places is a fun takedown of the rich as well. Like, the idea that Animal House is toying with but doesn't really get while Trading Places, like, nails it right down the middle. Uh, Yeah, I agree. The politics are a lot more coherent. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, you skipped over An American Wealth in London, a film that you've told me you don't have much of an affinity for. I like it enough. But you're confused by the way people talk about it as the all-timer horror comedy, right? People love this movie, and I watched it again this morning, Mm -hmm. and... You know, I just I just don't know. I think it suffers from the same problems that most of Landis's movies suffer for me. Uh, big baggy stretches in the middle, relationships that I don't buy, you know, like well, the, the David Naughton and the, the nurse in this movie. I mean, American Werewolf in London, the first time I saw it, I was a little bit baffled by what I ended up getting, which was a film that felt like it only had two acts where it's like mm-hmm. two guys. They go on their trip. One of them turns into a werewolf and then the other guy realizes he's a werewolf. And then he's killed by the police. And I'm like, huh? 
That's yeah. it? Like, it that's ends, what the movie ends is? so abruptly. And it feels like a movie that was written by a young, passionate guy who liked these movies, but didn't actually understand how to tell the story he wanted to tell. Because John Landis, by his accounts, he wrote the script ages ago. He wanted it to be his first film, and he would say stuff like, I want to do the transformation scene in one unbroken take. Like, that's the kind of movie that you have, which is these amazing special effects, these really fun dream sequences, and kind of a baggy nothing around it. Yeah, I mean, David Naughton, I think mm. you'll agree, is a bit of a bit of a cipher. Well, I really like David Naughton and Griffin Dunn at the beginning when they're yeah. doing their shtick and walking. I, I mean, like Griffin Dunn throughout. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the thing about horror comedies that people don't understand is that, like, you have to like the characters, and mm-hmm. if you like the characters and you buy them on that level, mm-hmm. then they're allowed to be funny with each mm-hmm. other. And then when you do horror, and if you treat it seriously, then that's how you get a horror comedy that works, that you don't treat it mm-hmm. as a joke. And, you know, uh, John Lannis doesn't treat the horror as a joke yeah. in American Wealth in London. Yeah, I think the tone that he goes for in this movie is like very interesting and very delicate because mm-hmm. the laughs never overwhelm the mm-hmm. movie like they're, they're always kind of like just simmering there like the scenes with Griffin Dunn when he comes back as kind of a, a spirit yeah well um, it's funny but it's also disturbing yeah. because of the way that he looks and he's right? constantly decomposing mm-hmm. and like the tone of those scenes is handled so well you know or the geeky stuff that John Landis does like the whole soundtrack is um, composed of like songs that have moon in the title like when uh, David Naughton transforms and instead of doing like a bombastic score you just just have Blue Moon play over all of it. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't find that as funny. Really? As, oh, I like that. And the yeah. weird cutaway they have to a Mickey Mouse doll suddenly in the mm. transformation scene. It's like, this is real and it's horrifying and it looks like it hurts, but at the same time he undercuts it with a joke yeah. without making it like, oh, okay, this is a movie. It's not a parody. Yeah. yeah. Like even the climax of the film, which is this crazy massacre, is like in of itself funny like the werewolf going around and the level of chaos that he's causing but at the same time it's kind of horrifying how many people are being murdered and stuff like that well the rick baker makeup effects are obviously amazing Mm -hmm. i kind of like how he brings certain tropes in without kind of overtly making fun of them Mm -hmm. like the scene at the beginning where the two guys stop off at that uh you know uh slaughtered lamb yeah yeah Mm -hmm. like like the scene in nosferatu basically (laughs) yeah or uh, stuff like like the final scene in the porno theater when they're watching mm-hmm. See You Next Wednesday and like all the corpses are there and they're like, kill yourself, kill yourself. Yeah. And his friend is like, oh, no, don't hang yourself. It'll take too long to die. And like one of the homeless people is like, no, he should that. He should suffer. <laughs> and Griffin Dunn's like, hey, this is my friend here. We should do it an easier way. That's painless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like the movie, though. I yeah. know, but you're, you're just... I guess confused of like why people love it as much as they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think that there's other horror comedies that come to mind that do what American Werewolf in London does? I, I don't think it's quite the same tonally, but something like Shaun of the Dead mm-hmm. uh, is going for something sort of similar where the horror you sort of take seriously. It's like grounded in mm-hmm. in something in something serious. Yeah, that's yeah. a good example. Yeah. Uh, so well, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein actually is it, another example. Like it, the, the monsters in that movie are taken very seriously. Yeah, they are. But at the same time, those two movies are still much goofier than American Werewolf in London Yeah, is. definitely. And maybe, maybe The Stuff by Larry Cohen. <laughs> I mean, that movie's pretty goofy as yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I can understand why people people like hold up American Werewolf in London so highly. I really like it as well. I've owned it a bunch of times on physical media, but I also understand the uh, trepidation you have, which is like, is it as good as everybody says it is? How do you feel about an American Werewolf in Paris? It's awful. I watched it uh, months ago and it is as bad as I remember watching it at the time. It is like the best 90s like 70s 
soundtrack album, mm-hmm. I believe there was two Smash Mouth songs oh, nice. in the film. And uh, Julie Delpy, for God's sake. Oh, man. Gotta collect those checks. <laughs> we couldn't mention John Landis without mentioning the fact that he directed Michael Jackson's Thriller, which is probably the most famous music video of all time. Yeah. This yeah. may have been one of the first horror things that I watched as a kid because my sister was obsessed with Michael Jackson and my consequence, she watched Thriller all the time. And she had the version where there was the behind the scenes stuff, the making of Thriller, which was like a big deal yeah. at the time. I mean, I don't really think of Landis as an auteur exactly, but mm. uh, if I were to pinpoint what the Landis sensibility is, uh, I think the Michael Jackson Thriller video does it as good as anything, right? Vincent Price opening yeah. it over like a, a tracking shot of a graveyard with fog coming out of it. Some kind of like... Uh, uh, you know, Joe Dante light. Mm-hmm. He's like Joe Dante light with a bit more of a jockish sensibility. Yeah. Like he thinks he's the smartest person in the room and he's also the loudest. Yeah. Well, Joe Dante is probably like the quiet guy in the corner. Yeah. Which makes sense that they would both become friends yeah. when they lived in LA. I like Joe Dante better, by the way. Mm-hmm. After that, the Twilight Zone incident happened and his next film was Into the Night, which is a film that I actually kind of like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very long and kind of like drawn out film where Jeff Goldblum kind of runs around LA meeting a bunch of strange people like David Bowie playing an assassin. Oh wow. And it may be the most film geek heavy of all of John Landis's films. There's so many weird cameos by filmmakers. Something that like kind of defines John Landis' cinema for me, mm-hmm. which is like, oh, Sam Raimi appears in this film yeah. or Dario Argento appears in Innocent Blood mm-hmm. or Robert Wise appears in The Stupids. Like, yeah. John Landis just, like, loves movies so much, and I, he loves the idea, I guess, of putting directors in front of the camera. David Cronenberg is in so many of his movies. Yeah. Mostly because he shot a lot of them in Toronto, <laughs> like the stupid. Adam McGoyan is in the stupid. Yeah, he is, because he shot in Toronto, and yeah. I'm, he probably went, who are the Toronto filmmakers? <laughs> ah, Adam McGoyan, Mr. Exotica himself. Well, from this era of John Landis, I watched Coming to America, a movie that I had seen in parts on TV many times, mm-hmm. but never from beginning to end you know what can i say uh i'll sound like a broken record but boring for long stretches really funny really funny point. at some points the, i mean john the barbershop scene john landis uh likes to talk about the fact that when he was making these movies that they weren't any like black leading man films mm-hmm. and that when he made coming to america his ideas was to give eddie murphy not only the center stage but making like a African-based story. Now, is this John Landis' story to tell? No. Would anyone have had the opportunity to make this film other than John Landis? Also, no. Well, I mean, it's a good point, though. Like... I sometimes think of that scene in Do the Right Thing when Spike Lee says to John Turturro, look, you love Michael Jackson, you mm-hmm. love Eddie Murphy, uh, they're black. And John Turturro says, oh, they're not really black. Mm-hmm. Like, like Coming to America is a, at least like kind of a movie that's about blackness. Yeah, you know? it's not a film like Beverly Hills Cop where it's like, ah, it's like the funny black guy. He could be Fletch. He could yeah. be anybody. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Fletch, let's not forget that John Landis did the duo of Spies Like Us <laughs> and the Three Amigos, the Chevy Chase duology. <laughs> movies that I saw as a kid. You know, John Landis specializes in movies that I saw as a kid. I 
started recognizing what John Landis movies were because he gives so much headroom to all the actors. <laughs> and I, I don't know why this caught my imagination, but it did. But I started noticing in all the John Landis pictures, there's just like a little bit too much headroom. And that's obviously a choice of shooting in wides. Spies Like Us, not funny. Three Amigos, hilarious. You heard it here first, folks. Yep. Just like Amazon Women of the Moon, whose only segment I remember is the one where it's like, truth or fiction, could Jack the Ripper be the Loch Ness Monster? <laughs> So from coming to America, obviously a huge blockbuster smash, the Landis decline begins. What do you mean? Oscar, the 1991 Sylvester Stallone French farce. How could that fail? So I read an interview with Stallone where he said that uh, it tested poorly, then Stallone cut out 20 minutes of it and it tested better. Mm -hmm. But Landis insisted on having it longer. Now, who knows who to believe in Stallone. Stallone is absolutely right. You watch Oscar, which I did for the Sylvester Stallone episode we did, and you're like, this is way too long like this should be moving very quickly as stallone said in the interview i read like in a farce you don't pause you go straight ahead Mm -hmm. but we both watched one of his late works an example of late style i would say (laughs) (laughs) innocent blood yeah from 1992 his return to the horror comedy realm um and like an american werewolf in london it's a movie where like the comedy is just sort of under the surface for a lot of it Uh, it's a peculiar mashup of the vampire movie and the gangster movie. But unlike American Werewolf in London, the mistake that it makes is that it assumes we care about any of these characters. While American Werewolf in London kind of grounds its horror and comedy in the friendship between these two kind of Americans, Innocent Blood's got none of that. Everybody is an over-the-top caricature. The two main characters whose names I forget. There's Anne Perriot, who plays Mary. And Anthony LaPaglia, who plays Joe. Who I confused with like a Baldwin every time he showed up on screen. (laughs) So did I. I was like, Wait. I thought it was Billy. <laughs> I'm like, is that Billy Baldwin? Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, I would check like multiple times during the movie, and I'm like, nah, no, they must have it wrong. <laughs> I was checking IMDb. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so they're like, yeah, the, the the characters who are supposed to ground the movie, but they're, in my opinion, not good. No, they're probably the most uninteresting part of the film. Yeah. Because what's interesting is that one of the gangsters, played by Robert Loja, uh, goes on a kill a happy murder spree. It's just fun to watch Robert Loja just chew up the scenery. So she, the leading lady, is a vampire and she infects this gang. Um, and the gang includes, you know, such uh, gangland caricatures as Chaz Palminteri and, you know, one by one they get turned into vampires and Robert Loggia you know absolutely full throttle also in the movie Don Rickles uh, who has an amazing uh, melt scene where yeah. he gets caught in sunlight like oh, and they cut to like a I hope the only ever made a prosthetic Don Rickles that's melting so as a gangster movie you know you got your goombas and your cannolis <laughs> and everything it's like it's like a, a pure like goodfellas pastiche and as a uh, vampire movie it's also pretty like full blooded yeah there's a lot of uh, bloodshed in this film yeah it's also got some like weirdly erotic passages in it as well mm-hmm. like just very straight-facedly sexy parts and it's a great looking movie oh, thanks yeah. to cinematographer mac alberg who is most famous for shooting almost all of charlie band's empire <laughs> and full moon films it looks really good actually it does. um and it's just a movie that you know maybe it doesn't all hang together and like all of landis's movies it has big longers in it mm-hmm. but you know how can you not like a movie that has so much weird stuff in it that has Don Rickles turning into a vampire and then dying that has Dario Argento and Sam Raimi you know and Tom Savini showing up in cameos so Uh, yeah it's fun but like it's not I felt like the return to form that 
No. John Landis probably meant it to be. It's it's less than the sum of its parts, mm-hmm. I think. And from there on, John Landis's career became woof downward spiral. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop Three, which you know he uh, blames on Eddie Murphy because Eddie Murphy at the time said, you know, Axel Foley's grown up; he doesn't do jokes anymore. I think Landis interpreted it as like Eddie Murphy was uh, feeling a little depressed about his career, and he saw people like Denzel Washington who could be like actual action stars. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be like that. Why do I have to make jokes? <laughs> and whew, it's brutal. But you do get a cameo from people like George Lucas and <laughs> Judge Reinhold gets to be on the big screen again. Uh, so uh, Landis continued his friendship with George Lucas, but not Spielberg. I guess not. Interesting. Uh, in 1996, he made The Stupids, which is, in my opinion, a very funny movie. The classic Tom Arnold's <laughs> film, the definitive Tom Arnold film. Uh, written by a Simpsons writer called Brent Forrester. It's essentially a series of Homer Simpson gags done in real life. Now, whether you like that or not will be up to you, but it's also John Landis going completely off the rails and just doing all the crazy fun stuff that he wants to do. At one point, uh, Tom Arnold as uh, Stanley Stupid uh, realizes that all these letters are being returned to sender. Who is this mysterious sender who keeps getting all these letters? And then he imagines who it is and it's a candy-colored Mario Bava-like lit uh, cavern where Christopher Lee in devil makeup is opening letters and going, ha ha ha, you'll never get this check. And then he throws it in a giant ornate fire that breathes it outward every time he does it. You're definitely selling me on this movie, which I saw as a child, enjoyed, Mm -hmm. never thought to see again. It has a stop motion dog and cat who are the pets of the stupids and there's these crazy Rick Baker design aliens that show up a bunch of times. I remember Tom Arnold singing a fun song in it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I'm my own grandpa. Yeah, Classic right. um, a, a tune from the I don't know. I'm sure you hear it on the radio all the time. <laughs> I'm my own grandpa. Of course, in 1998 came John Landis's Career Waterloo, a film that I saw first run in a the theater. <laughs> really? Lewis Brothers 2000. I remember it was advertised endlessly oh, yeah. in 1998. And it was that shot of like the four because you know the better of the two blues brothers had died so they really needed to overcompensate so they had four blues brothers in it including a child and john goodman and uh, that's pretty much it for john landis yeah i mean he came back with burt birkin hair Uh, i saw uh i don't know if it's world premiere or it's canadian premiere at the fantasia film festival it was brutal was Landis there? Yes, he was. And wow. he did an amazing uh, talk with Ray Harryhausen before oh. screening of uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Beautiful. And I remember vividly being in the audience for both of those Q&As and going, I wonder if anybody will ask him about the Twilight Zone. I wonder if people do ask him about the Twilight Zone. There's like... got to be like a reaction that he has when that happens. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons he doesn't do podcasts or interviews because he knows that question will come up because he's been very like, I don't want to talk about this. I saw his brilliant son Max Landis uh, you know. I don't want to open that can of worms well uh, but I've seen him like try to defend his dad on okay. the internet over this so it's definitely like something that the Landis family has talked about but if we can close this discussion by getting back to the Twilight Zone thing we've uh, been very hard on John Landis for this but perhaps to interrogate ourselves a little bit we love Hong Kong cinema we love Hong Kong cinema we love when Werner Herzog pulls a boat over a mountain which could have killed people on Fitzcarraldo but it didn't so he's like ah he's this legend yeah. or the French Connection you know and yeah. and you know the Twilight Zone not as good a movie as uh, Fitzcarraldo so uh, you know we, we were harder on it I think as a result of that as well there, there is no <coughs> doubt that uh, when when he was going for maximum realism in these things, like 
we do like that maximum realism. Yeah, we do. We yeah. want that. When we hear those stories yeah. like, oh, wow, can you imagine how close that helicopter came from the explosion? Like, before this podcast started, I showed Will some footage of people jumping from an explosion where they're caught in it, and we were like, ha, ha, wow, that's crazy. When those people probably, like, suffered horrible mm-hmm. burns that they lived with for the rest of their lives. And also, frankly, we like the idea of, like, this... I mean, I think we've been interrogating it lately, but mm-hmm. we like the idea of this visionary director who will stop at nothing. Like, this is one of the almost like foundational archetypes of cinephilia isn't mm-hmm. it the megalomaniac director whose art comes before everything else mm-hmm. and i don't think john landis is a particularly brilliant director but i'm sure he kind of saw himself in those terms he's a cinephile yeah and know? like when he was making the twilight zone i'm sure he assumed that he would just go on to bigger and bigger heights mm-hmm. until he was making those movies that would make our top five lists mm-hmm. and then because it didn't happen we you know we approach him differently mm-hmm. right because this is the thing that overpowers his entire life so, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we went back to 1977 and we each picked our five favorite films. I mean, you could probably guess some that are on our list, but there's some that will shock you. And some that might shock you by their exclusion. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll get angry letters of like, how could you not include this? And I'll go, I forgot it. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, as per usual, you can uh, become a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash club. It's $5 a month, and you get four episodes every week and our entire back catalog. And if you missed it, we did a Fantasy Mission Force episode, a full commentary on the Jackie Chan film, like, I think just a few weeks ago. And, and it syncs up to the film. You can watch it along with us as we regale you with exciting tidbits and pieces of information and personal recollections. So if you're a fan of this podcast... You owe it to yourself to become a Patreon subscriber. You can listen to that commentary and pretend you're the third person in the room. Yeah, you can listen to all our Patreon episodes and pretend you're the third person in the room. You can talk during it (laughs) as if you're having a conversation. But you can't do that with our regular episodes. No. Doesn't work. Sacred. What if we did, like, um, what was that, like, uh, video? It's like Virtual Friend. Oh, yeah, Rent-A-Friend. Rent-A-Friend. Where we do a podcast where we're like, man, this movie's good. What do you think about it? And then we leave a pause for them to respond. We could do a whole episode like that. Yeah. (laughs) But only for Patreon subscribers. Oh, hey, uh, a few weeks ago, we got a letter where somebody asked, what is a lesser film by a major director that you think should be considered major? Mm -hmm. Thought of one just while we're doing this. Looney Tunes Back in Action by Joe Dante. Ah, that movie's amazing. That should be considered one of his, like, uh, it should get more love. People go like, Gremlins 2, Gremlins 2, but it's like, Looney Tunes Back in Action does all the stuff that Gremlins 2 does, but just in a different, like, context, and it's also the post-2000s world where people don't have the affinity for that they do for, like, you know, the 80s when Gremlins came out. I think uh, Arrow should put it on Blu-ray. They should find a way to license it. We will do the scholarly essay on it, and uh, we'd be happy to, so give us a ring arrow so our first letter is from loyal letter writer oh my what a guy and uh that's his first and last name he goes i think i should be the one to judge that go ahead (laughs) hey guys do you think david bowie should have focused on acting more or did he work better as a surprise cameo also do you think peter weir is worth an episode just finished picnic at hanging rock and gallipoli is one of my favorite movies david bowie the actor mr lawrence himself Boy, I like David Bowie as an actor. Mm-hmm. I love him in uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Or The Hunger. Or uh, I like him in Basquiat as well, where he plays Andy Warhol. Uh, the he... classic prestige David Bowie. 
I think um, there's something about him, like Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence captures how he was almost like this luminous presence. Mm-hmm. This, he had this very unique charisma. I believe Werner Herzog once derisively called him a uh, like a glowing neon light or something. <laughs> but but I mean, actually, he is kind of like yeah. that. And I mean, his androgynous figure like it just yeah. captures something yeah. on screen or the man like, who fell to earth yeah the man like, who yeah, fell to yeah, earth yeah, yeah. uh i like him as an actor he did act a lot so it's not like there's like a hole in david bowie's acting career it's just that you know some of them are good some of them were not so good he drifted away from acting for sure like mm-hmm. i don't think he really did anything after the prestige and no yeah that was it pretty much for that. him but i don't know i think he brought so much baggage with him that maybe there's only so many kinds of parts he could do especially as he got older and he is primarily a musician mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. he know. was busy with other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad to have the music career. And as far as Peter Weir goes, he's a director that I like and I've never really dived into his filmography. I really like Picnic at Hanging Rock mm-hmm. and I've never seen Gallipoli and I've never seen Master and Commander, but my really? brother, the historical um, fiend, he swears by that film. He watched it a hundred times when I was a kid. I feel like we haven't really explored the cinema of Australia no. that, that intensely. He, yeah, he, like yeah. Fair Game and Razorback, and, right? Uh, Crocodile Dundee. And, uh, <laughs> in Los Angeles. Yes, uh, which begins in the outback. <laughs> Australian cinema is definitely something we would talk more about and not like an episode on Australia, like actually specific directors, yeah. like our Brian Trenchard Smith upcoming episode. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Peter Weir, definitely a topic for discussion. I think he had a very interesting career from like, again, stuff like the art house picnic at Hanging Rock, uh, horror film existentiality, and then the kind of treacly uh, Jim Carrey, the Truman Show yeah, stuff. prestige work. Hollywood yeah. stuff, yeah. There's definitely a lot to talk there, and I shall put it on the list, and we shall get to it in time. Yeah, this podcast is going to be running for the rest of your life, so <laughs> we, we will eventually talk about every filmmaker. And next week, so next week, we'll be talking about Lena Wertmuller. A filmmaker probably most famous for Love and Anarchy and Swept Away. Mm. Not to be confused with the Madonna mm. uh, starring remake directed by Guy Ritchie. And she's a filmmaker that I've heard a lot about. She was one of the few female Best Director nominees. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have never seen a single one of her films. Mm. And uh, that's kind of shocking, but I'm really excited to dive into her filmography and discover someone new. Until then, the balcony is closed. No! My name's Justin Kloop. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So, TIFF is over. I saw a ridiculous amount of movies, but what's really important is the People's Choice Awards. Because we learn who the Oscar contender is going to be this year. God, doesn't it feel great to have the power in your hands? <laughs> you know, the People's Choice Award can make or break a film. Yeah, it can. And I remember that while I was at TIFF, uh, something fell open and I went, all right, uh, I got the times wrong for this. So I have to see a film to like fill that slot. And I went, huh, I could see Green Book, uh, this film that uh, is directed by Peter Farley of the Three Stooges, <laughs> a favorite of the Important Cinema Club. It happens to star two people that I like. Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali. Mahershala Ali last being seen in stuff like Moonlight and tons of movies. Mm-hmm. And Viggo Mortensen, a guy that actually doesn't act that much. And in this film, which I could only describe as a reverse driving Miss Daisy, where a working class white guy teaches an upper class black musician about lessons of life. It's as I described your grandmother's new favorite film. <laughs> 
no movie looked less promising to me at TIFF this year <laughs> than this one. I mean, I like some of the Farrelly Brothers movies, but they are not uh, great stylists by any means. No, and this film is not stylish. And I think uh, they're kind of um, liberalish, touchy feely um, side is better when it's, or at least I assumed it was better, kind of a little bit under the surface. Well, I mean, like the Green Book is the first time that Peter Farley actually attempts like a dramatic film yeah. ever, I believe. I mean, I could look back through his filmography, but I don't know if it fell between Dumb and Dumber 2 and Three Stooges, <laughs> like that drama that he wanted to get off the ground. And I heard from people that were at the major screening that during the Q&A, Peter Farley was like, I've never actually been to a film festival to present a movie because I've never made a movie to be here. Well, he's forgetting the time that the Three Stooges won the Palme d'Or. <laughs> ah, in our world, it did. And, I mean, this is a big lead-up we didn't say, but Green Book won the People's Choice Award, mm-hmm. which is a little embarrassing. You think so? Yes. You, you I, liked it, though, right? Oh, I did like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, again, I can like my grandmother's favorite movie, <laughs> where it's these two, like, really good actors are doing their thing in the cliched kind of, like, getting out of your way, feel-good type movie. It has a planes, trains, and automobile-style finish. Like, what's not to like during Christmas? What's not to like about a movie like that? I'm sure it's, uh, as you said on Letterboxd, it's like a movie that when you're home at the Christmas holidays and the whole family needs to watch a movie mm-hmm. that's that's got a lot of ham in it. Yeah. You know, what, do you, what do you show them? But I'm very suspicious of this movie. Like, it looks like a movie that has backlash written all over it. Oh, man, the hot know? takes are going to come out of this. I mean, the People's Choice Award is defined by what people like and go, mm, I'm going to vote for this. So, like, La La Land and Moonlight played the same year TIFF. And, like, Moonlight didn't win. Moonlight would never win. Mm-hmm. La La Land did. Because that's, like, the easy, digestible movie that when you step out, you go, oh, I like this movie, and you put it in the thing. Also, I think TIFF games the system just a little bit. Oh, like, yeah, they yeah, do. Yeah, they yeah. add more screenings to movies they want to yeah, win. <laughs> yeah, because TIFF wants to be, like, a real Oscar launching pad. And, by the way, I think TIFF got a bit of its mojo back this year on that front, right? There were a lot of, like, you know, the Barry Jenkins movie, the Damien Chazelle movie, a lot of stuff. Stars Born, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's real easy like straight ahead stuff I, all those movies that you mentioned I guess it got a mojo back in the sense that like it's playing films by people that were nominated for Oscars last year or Bradley Cooper who is you know doing his best to make the greatest movie of all time like these TIFF prides itself in being the launching pad to the Oscars and I feel like that reputation maybe lagged a bit in the last mm-hmm. couple of years but now they're roaring back I mean but like isn't it like a monkey's paw curse if like Green Book wins best picture because that's just like a reversal of everything that like Moonlight won last year right yeah, yeah. green book if it wins the oscar could only be like a backlash reaction to that like do we need difficult films like 12 years a slave can we have just easy feel-good stuff that says hey we may be racist on the outside but on the inside aren't we all human by the way isn't it interesting that like a few years ago uh all the best picture winners were movies about like hollywood in some way mm-hmm. like the artist or i mean they always are yeah but but now like there's a wave of best picture winners that are either like explicitly about race or something like the shape of water mm-hmm. that is sort of covertly about, oh man barely I covertly completely about forgot race. that the shape of water yeah. it won best picture yeah. right yeah, that's yeah. crazy i completely <laughs> yeah i'm like moonlight won last year right guys <laughs> but but like if green book wins probably like three years in a row and i don't know what won before that but oh uh, fucking birdman uh, yeah oh man i forgot birdman won yeah, yeah but 12 years a slave won before mm-hmm. that and like i don't know it's just interesting you see the best picture winners and it sort of like measures the temperature of like what people in hollywood are feeling at that given time I mean, maybe i want to take the jean-marie straben uh daniel uh tact which is like i'm not going to show 
the riot or the unionization because then that would give you the satisfaction of it happening <laughs> and wouldn't prompt you to go out and do it. Yeah. It's kind of like these feel good, like, ah, racism doesn't really exist. Yeah. Just makes people feel better. Like, oh yeah, the world is a better place. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, uh, the People's Choice Award for Midnight Madness, the program that was done by our pal Peter Kaplowski, the winner of that was the underdog of the entire festival, which was The Man Who Feels No Pain, a Bollywood film, which, you know, they never win any awards because they rarely play at film festivals unless they're like art pictures. Yeah, I was glad that he programmed that. I unfortunately uh, fell asleep halfway through and had to go home. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm an old man. I can't stay up it's late. It's midnight. You need to drink some coffee, especially when the movie is two hours and ten uh, minutes. I know, I know. But I did get to meet uh, the action choreographer of that film and have dinner with him, Eric uh, Jacobus, mm-hmm. the the director of fucking Contour, which yeah, we talked about last which week. Which we talked about last week. He was very nice. He had heard about the podcast and shared it with his friends. Oh, really? Yeah, nice. he did. Nice. And um, he knew as much as you would want someone to know about like action choreographers. He'd be like, this guy. He's like, oh, yeah, this movie and that movie. And he was very happy that I knew about his Stunt People website where he used to break down all the action scenes. Oh, great. He's like, I was making it for people like you. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and it's great. He actually got on stage with the rest of the cast to do the Q&A. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I can't remember any time where an action choreographer or choreographers because his partner, Dennis Rule, got up on stage and they actually did the Q&A with the Bollywood stars and the director, which is amazing. And I have to give it all to Peter Kaplowski for being like, you guys should be here. Like, we'll do the q and I remember when... Um, Bunraku played like that really bad Josh Hartnett like action picture the two like biggest action choreographers like working in the industry uh, JJ Perry and Larnell Stovall were in the audience and they just stood up and waved at one point but never got up on stage Uh, and it's like come on yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) well Josh Hartnett yeah exactly chopped liver (laughs) 